Now Absalom comes to him and he says, don't take it too seriously. Tamar Deviste lived in the house of our brother Absalom. Now what Absalom is saying, he says, do not, let, do not take this to heart, my sister. And he takes her to live with him for the rest of her life. Do not interpret that as in get over it. It means like, do not let this bother you. I will become your justice. You were alone in that room and you were violated, but no longer you are now in my home under my shield and I, I will get you justice. Now, in some ways, that's the good brother. But as we see him execute justice, you're going to realize yeah, that that's a violation of the law, though. And there's a mixed feeling here. Now, King David heard about all these things, and he was very angry. The end. <laughs> but Absalom said nothing to Abnon, either good or bad. Yet Absalom hated Abnon because he humiliated his sister Tamar. And the very next verse will say, two years later. The last note on this story is, David becomes enraged, and that's it. We've seen that one other place. When Dinah got raped by the Shechemites in chapter 34 of Genesis, we're told that Jacob, who already played favorites against all the children of Leah, including Dinah, got really angry, and that was it. And then the sons took matters into their own hands and killed all the Shechemites. And then when the dad came back, the dad was not upset about the evil thing that he did. He was upset that they had made themselves vulnerable for attack and revenge. And then they lashed back at their father and said, should we have treated our sister like a prostitute? And the unspoken line is, like you did. And we see how the sons felt about a father who only gets angry but doesn't give justice. Now, no, we don't want David to go out and violate the law and just murder people in anger because his daughter has been raped. But you would at least like to know that your dad has to hold himself back from it a little bit and try to exercise a lot of self-control. And you would at least to know that your dad will pursue every possible legal route to prosecute this crime and will devote tons of energy to this. And David being the king over Israel is the judge and he should be dealing with his kids and this is a violation of the law that should be punished. And yet, just like with Joab, he does not execute the law on him. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't punish him. He doesn't justice. He just gets angry. And just like Jacob's sons who went out and got revenge on their own, what is Absalom going to do? Get revenge on his own. And just like the sons then turned on the father, Absalom is going to then turn on the father. And this is why people say, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Because no matter how many years go by and how much cultures change, the basic nature of humans and our responses do not change. And if you do not learn from the bad parenting of Jacob and David, then you're probably going to see some kind of repeat of it in your own family. Maybe not to these extremes, 
But these are the lessons of the Bible. Not only is it teaching you what we are really like in our sinful nature and who God is in response to that, but we also must look at these stories and say, if this is what human nature produces in this scenario, and I do not want that for my family, then I should take notes as a father. And I know it's easier said than done, believe me. I mean, it's so easy to read, like, Shepherding a Child's Heart and all those books and grace, and then you're like, go to execute, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm an idiot again. Like, I know this. Why can't I change my behavior as a parent? I know all that. But at the same time, that's also why I constantly reread them all the time and try and pray and all that kind of stuff because I desperately don't want to be like this. And, and I think kids will show you grace over time when they see that you don't want to be like this versus it just, whatever, this is how my parents raised me. There's a lesson here. And what we're seeing is, too, here's the other thing. And I know this is the last point. His son did not become like this overnight. Why is his son doing this to Tamar? Because of the judgment of God. You raped a woman. Now it's going to happen in your family. You brought the sword to somebody's house. The sword is coming to your house. But at the same time, it's not like God said, okay, that's your judgment. Wave a magic wand. Your family is now dysfunctional overnight. He's a grown man. These are kids that are about ready to be married at that age. They did not just overnight turn into a rapist. They did not just, David just didn't turn into a bad parent overnight and they had this memory of bad father all their lives. That did not just magically happen. David's been like that. And there's this weird dichotomy between these are the natural consequences that have been building up over years of bad parenting, human responsibility, but it's also the divine sovereignty of God as punishment on sin and a predestination kind of a sense, for lack of a better phrase, even though I don't like that word. And you have both the sovereignty of God and judgment and the natural consequences of human responsibility, and they're all coming clashing together in the same moment. And here's the other thing you must understand. There are so many bad things that can happen to us at any moment of the day. I know it's like, this is a great ending note to leave you on. See? The bell's about ready to ring and go out there. At any moment, you could die in a car accident. You know this because you watch the news, right? At any moment. And you know, every time you turn on television, they were just walking along the road and they started choking. They died right then and there in the first year of their marriage. And they had all this life alone and da-da-da. Like, oh, you stories like that all the time. Or they're healthy one day and they get hit by a car. They all of a sudden discover a tumor in their head. And things just change drastically in a second. And we know that life is like that. Unfortunately, we don't live as if like that way. Like we know. And that's, there's a, you don't want to be paranoid and hypochondriac, but you also don't want to be so oblivious that you waste your moments. And you don't appreciate things. You have to realize something. The grace of God doesn't just cover your life in sin and salvation. But a lot of times the grace of God also covers your bad decisions. We are constantly making bad decisions all the time. I make mistakes as a father all the time. There are so many things that I'm doing that could potentially screw my kids up and make them get counseling the rest of their life. (laughs) And in the same way that when my kids, we learned about pregnancy and birth and we're like, oh my gosh, all the things that could go wrong. It's a miracle that any kid actually comes out alive, let alone healthy. And the same way as I look at parenting my kids, I think it's amazing that any kid grows up healthy in any kind of a way. 
I mean, I'm trying as hard as I can, and you got kids from really deadbeat parents, and they grow up to be great people. Like, that's the grace of God. There are so many things that God's grace is covering our bad decisions because deep down inside we are pursuing God and we are praying to God and we want to be a better person. We're praying for sanctification and love covers a multitude of sins. And God steps in in the promises of Deuteronomy and yes, he doesn't make your life a happy-go-lucky life, wealth and prosperity and health and all that kind of stuff. But in a certain sense, the grace of God comes over your desire to be a man or woman after God's own heart, your desire to surrender. And not that you do that perfectly all the time, not that you obey all the time, but there's a certain point where God says, I see your heart, I see your pursuit, and that's the whole point of the power of the Holy Spirit. He steps in and does the rest. And he works in your child's lives, and he gives them the ability to come out and be more functional than you have any right to expect as a flawed, sinful parent. And they turn out to be somewhat decent overall because God's grace steps in. And you have no idea how many things God is protecting you from. At any moment, houses being broken into, fires and accidents and cancer and, and dysfunctional children. And, and, and yet God's grace is over all of that. And if David would have been obedient to God, God could have made all this work out. Maybe God would have stepped in and sent a different person to give advice to Abnon than Jonadah. Maybe David would have, the Holy Spirit would have come in and convicted him and said, go spend some time with your kids today. And he would have responded. And over time, something would have, all you need is that one person that was there instead of Jonadah to give Abnon different advice and point him in a different direction. A, a big brother, a surrogate father kind of a person that would have come in. And there's so many times that God brings other people or other things in to just kind of twist things in a different direction for your benefit. But when we shake our fist at God and say, I'm going to do things my way, and I don't need you, and I'm not going to pray. And sometimes we don't literally say that, but we live like that because we don't really pray and we don't pursue and we kind of do our own thing. Then we go into Romans chapter 1 and 2, and it says, God gave them over. And most of the time, God's judgment is not bringing a lightning bolt and striking you down with cancer for your sins. Most of the time, God says, fine. Do you want to live without me? Hands off. And we know that. Sometimes we, some of you probably had to do that with your own kids or your own students. You're so obstinate and so anti-us. I, I just got to be hands off now in your life and let you learn the hard way. And eventually when your choices destroy you, that will bring you to a brokenness that will cry out to God in repentance and you'll be ready to listen to my advice and ready for me to help you. And that's what God does. And God at any moment could have said, David, you could have raped her, you could have killed him, and you chose not to. And this family is jacked up and dysfunctional, but because you chose the right thing and you obeyed me, you prayed to me and pursued me, I'm going to bring people in your life to alter Abnon's path and Absalom and all this stuff. And I'll somehow cover this with grace. They won't grow up to be perfect. No one does. But this will be different. But then David says, screw you. I'm doing things my way. I'm going to take what I want. And he did that so often that God said, fine. You want to live the life you want, you want to? Then you're on your own. And I'm going to give you over into your own parenting. No longer will it be you and me parenting together. You said you could do it on your own. You're going to do it on your own. And now everything falls apart. And that's how our human responsibility and consequences couples with the sovereignty of God. 
And you need to realize that a lot of things that are happening in your family, in your life, it probably has a lot more to do with your heart for God and God covering your life with grace than it is that you're that awesome of a person. And I'm not saying you do everything wrong. None of us do. But we're not so awesome that we can take credit for everything that happens in our life. And that's the real warning here. Is if you really choose to be autonomous and a high level like David did or a low level and I'm just going to kind of make my own decisions and my own wisdom and not really pursue God, but I'm not really anti-God. I'm just kind of doing my own thing. Then you can expect to reap the consequences of your own life and choices. But even in your most dysfunctional, brokenness, flawed parenting, husband, wife, teacher, parent, co-worker, if you're pursuing God with all your heart and mind and soul and praying, God can step in with his grace and build an amazing thing that you will look back and think, I don't know how that even happened. And that's the choice that you have to make. So you're going to be like, David? Or are you going to learn from that and get on your knees and say, not me, but you, God? Because you're the only one that can build my future, my kingdom, my house, my career, my whatever. And please forgive me of my faults. Chapter 13, verse 23. This is two years later. So for two years, Absalom has been giving this silent treatment to his brother Abnon. They haven't talked. They haven't interacted with each other in any kind of a way. And we're going to find out that for the last two years, he's been planning his revenge, both on his brother and on his father. Now, it doesn't specifically say that here, but the fact that he puts something into motion and then so many things begin to happen, boom, 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 suggests that the only way that could have ever happened is with planning. With planning. So two years later, Absalom's sheep shears were in Baal Hazor near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Baal Hazor, Baal is just the Hebrew a Semitic word that means Lord, Master. So this is not a direct reference to Baal, the god of the storm. There's just multiple terms. Baal is used a lot in Hebrew language. And it's not until we get to kings that Baal becomes the personal name of a very specific god. It's briefly mentioned in Judges with Gideon, briefly mentioned in Numbers at the end with Phineas. But it's not really until Baal becomes a dominant force in the book of Kings. And it's at that point that the authors begin to kind of re-edit a lot of things to get rid of all the Baals that were innocent at one moment in history, but now are completely, um, they have a theological significance to it. So don't read any religious things into that terminology. So sheep shearing time. Now, just like harvesting crops, you plant your crops, you tend to them for a good amount of summer, spring and summer, and then towards the fall you harvest it, and that's the money you have from selling that for the entire year, unless you have some other business somewhere else. Sheep shearing is the same way. So you let your sheep grow their wool during the winter. When spring comes and starts getting warmer, you shear it all off and you begin to sell it. When you sell it, just like at harvest time, at sheep shearing time, you have a huge celebration, a huge party. This is, you've finally brought in a year's worth of income. You get that big giant check, and now you're going to celebrate it because you've made that money. And then this is usually a party 
or a celebration for your family and your workers, the people that have helped you. But this occasion, Absalom is inviting all of his brothers. Now remember, there's lots of brothers, and probably none of them were helping him with the sheep shearing. He's going to invite them anyways. He invites them, and he goes to his father to seek this permission. Verse 25, But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we shouldn't all go. We shouldn't burden you in that way. Though Absalom pressed him, the king was not willing to go. Instead, David blessed him. So he asked his father for permission for his brothers to come and join for the celebration. His dad's answer is, no, this would be too much of a burden for you. And then he presses more and more and more. His dad finally agrees to let the sons go, but refuses to go himself. That dialogue is not really necessary to know that the brothers are there, except it's necessary to understand what David is like with his son. I find it very interesting that the son is inviting him to a celebration, and yet the father sees himself as too much of a burden on his son. This is like your son inviting you to, like, Christmas holidays, and you're like, no, that just would be too much for you. We're not going to go. Ah, uh, you can't. That, that says something about their relationship. That says something about their relationship. So we've seen him passive in rebuking his son. We've seen him passive in dealing with his other son, and the rape of his daughter, and now we see that he's completely disconnected and joining his son for the celebrations. Verse 26, And Absalom said, If you will not go, then let my brother Abnon go with us. And the king replied to him, Why should he go with you? But in Absalom pressed him, he sent Abnon and all the king's sons along with him. Now David's aware enough. He knows. Like it doesn't take a genius to realize that if your one son raped your other daughter, who happens to be the full-blooded sister of your other son, there's going to be anger there. And he probably, hopefully by now, after two years, he's at least realized they're not talking with each other. At least his little birdies and spies in the palace should be telling him that. And so he's suspicious, and he says, why are you singling your brother Abnon of all people out to go out with you into the field all by yourselves with only you and your servants? And he presses, and David's like, well, okay. So it shows that there is some suspicion or at least an oddity to that request after all these years, yet David doesn't dig any deeper and just allows it to happen. And so once again, all this seems to be pointing. This dialogue is not necessary for what's coming next. But it all seems to be pointing to a father who's just completely disconnected. 28, Absalom instructed his servants, and said, When Amnon is high in spirits or drunk, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, kill him, then, then you do that there. Don't fear. Is it not I who have given you these instructions? Be strong and courageous. So Absalom's servants did to Amnon exactly what Absalom had instructed. And then all the king's sons got up. Each one rode away on his donkey and fled. Absalom has implemented his revenge. He's killed his brother out in the fields. The only people out there are the servants that are loyal to him and the other brothers. Absalom kills his older brother, Amnon, and when all the other brothers see this, they run for their lives. They know exactly what this is. Now, this says a couple things. First, this has been his plan for a while. Second, the fact that your servants are willing to obey you in killing one of your own brothers says that they're morally compromised and extremely loyal to you. That's big. The other thing that it suggests is that when every single other brother runs away, 
Either Absalom's servants are incredibly superior in numbers, which is not likely, because remember, all these sons would be there with their servants as well. Celebrities, royalty, they don't go anywhere alone, which suggests that Absalom is the kind of person that they fear, that there's a good chance that they probably outnumber him with all of their servants, and yet they run, which means he has the persona that has implemented fear in their lives, that they're, or they just don't think it's the home court advantage to him, or whatever reason, all this suggests that Absalom has power. He has power, and he executes it, and they all run, because they all assume they're next. We're eliminating all the sons. Now, Absalom really technically only has to eliminate Amnon, because one, that's his emotional focus of revenge, and two, that puts him next in line for the throne in a traditional sense of inheriting the throne. So for whatever reason, this news catches up to David before the sons do, which I find that interesting. So verse 30, while they were still on their way, the following report reached David and Absalom had killed all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. Then the king stood up and tore his garments and lay down the ground and all of his servants were standing there with torn garments as well. But Jonadab, the son of David's brother, Shimei, said, My lord should not say they have killed all the young men who are the king's sons. For only Amnon is dead. This is what Absalom has talked about from the day that Amnon humiliated his sister Tamar. Now don't let my lord the king be concerned about the report that has come saying all the king's sons are dead. It's only Amnon who is dead. Now this is interesting. Jonadab, remember, is the cousin and the friend of Amnon. And he's the one that advised Amnon to pretend that you're sick so you could lure your sister into being alone with you in the room to get what you want. So he's the one who is crafty and wise but is using wisdom for ill gain and is bad wisdom. Now he's advising David that don't be stressed out, not all your sons are dead. And what he says is this, because Absalom has been talking about for a long time how he wants to kill Abnon. The nephew of David knows more about David's sons than David does. He's made it very clear. Everybody knows Absalom's been talking about killing Abnon. And David's like, sure, go out in the field with Absalom. Everything's okay. And this shows you a completely dysfunctional disengaged father with his own family on everything that's going on because everybody seems to know more than what he does. Verse 36, Just as he had finished speaking, the king's sons arrived, wailing and weeping, and the king and all the servants wept loudly as well. But Absalom fled and went to King Tamali, the son of Amihaud of Gesher, and David grieved over his son every day. Absalom kills his brother, the sons flee, and Absalom immediately flees to Gesher. And this is important. Why does he flee to Gesher? Gesher is in the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's as far out of Israelite territory you can get. So Israel pretty much is everything between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, west to east. And then from the southern desert, right around the Dead Sea, all the way up to the Sea of Galilee is most of Israel. Gesher is on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee on the east side. Now the significance of going there is you're just out of the official political Israelite territory. 
You're not outside of David's kingdom because David's kingdom goes all the way to Euphrates. But you're outside of that official, what you would be kind of like, think of downtown Columbus. Like everything is Columbus, but downtown is considered the most official. When you're looking at maps and Google, that's like where they always put the marker at. Now you're getting into the outskirts. So he goes there. So he's pretty far from David's reach, so to speak. But the other thing that's interesting is that when we're told that Absalom was born, we're told that he was born to David's wife, who is from Gesher. He's going to his grandfather's land. David married the daughter of the king of Gesher and had Absalom. So he's going to his grandfather. He's going to his mother's side of the family for refuge. And that's where he's staying. He feels as if he's there. He'd be out of King, King David's reach. And he's with familiar people. And says that David grieved over his son every day. But other than that, he does nothing. Remember, all of this is David's territory. David has subjugated all the kings from the south of Israel all the way to the Euphrates River. He is the dominant king in the treaties. And the law says that you, if you murder, you're guilty of death. And the only place that you're allowed to flee for safety is a Levitical city. And even then, that doesn't protect you if you're truly guilty. It just guarantees that you're going to get a trial. So Gesher is technically under David's control, which he has every right politically and relationally, biologically, to bring Absalom back. And he doesn't have any special safety there because it's not a Levitical city. And yet David does nothing. We're told that he grieves his son's loss, but does nothing to get justice. Now, yes, I have no idea what it would be like to intentionally like call the cops on your son or to turn your son in or to be the king who's responsible for executing judgment. But the law clearly says it doesn't matter what the relationship is to you. God's law trumps everything. And that's the most important thing. At least there should be a trial. And David does nothing except grieves this. Chapter verse 38, after Absalom fled and went to Gesher, he remained there for three years. Three years he hangs out in Gesher, and David's going to do nothing about it. The king longed to go to Absalom, for he had since been consoled over the death of Abnon. That's it. You see a David who longs to see his son, but does nothing to pursue him. And a David who knows he probably should be executing justice on him, yet does nothing to make it happen. Even though technically, Gesher belongs to David in a political kind of a sense. And that's all we see. And so we see apathy, 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 or at least disengagement in every kind of way with David. 